Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and co-host Dr. Erica Reamer. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 314th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, brought to you today by the American Health Information Association, AHIMA, as we know them. And joining me this morning is my co-host, Dr. Erica Reamer, the very popular Dr. Reamer. Dr. Reamer is the founder and president of Erica Reamer, MD, Incorporated. Good morning, Dr. Reamer. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. As you know, February is Black History Month, and today on Tucked In Tuesday, we're going to be recognizing that occasion by an appearance of Crystal Watkins, MD, PhD. She's going to share her thoughts on her journey ascending from an African-American student at Baltimore City Schools to become a physician and a neuroscientist and the director of the memory clinic at Shepherd Pratt Health System. And speaking of Baltimore, Chuck, Diane Iverson, an emergency department nurse from Baltimore who has been advocating for the ability to capture social determinants of health from nurses and social workers' documentation, is going to be on the program later. That's right, and Diane's going to be reporting that the first quarter AHA coded clinic is going to permit that practice. And don't forget that February is American Heart Month, and returning to the broadcast will be nationally recognized cardio coding consultant Terry Fletcher. I assume she'll be reporting on a very hot topic. Yes, assumptive coding for heart disease. We have a great deal of news to report this morning, and for that we check in with Dr. Larry Field, who's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by ICD University, inviting you to register for the webcast, Assumptive Coding for Heart Disease, featuring Terry Fletcher on Wednesday, March 28th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Here now is Dr. Larry Field. Good morning, Chuck. Thanks for having me again. Again, I'm here representing the American College of Physician Advisors. Of interest to me is sometimes you're able to find information uh, in the weeds, so to speak, and in places that you don't expect. And, of course, like anybody else, I get uh, advertisements coming through email looking and posting for specific job positions. And things that I've seen over the last probably two weeks with increased in intensity has actually been from our RAC, formerly uh, Connolly, uh, COVID I can't even say the name right, COVID-T, um, where they're looking for more and more people to do clinical validation, trying to what appears to be going after the underlying uh, medical diagnoses that are present within a chart uh, that may, that would then allow uh, someone to code that chart into a specific DRG. And if we're going to get down into the weeds, looking at each individual diagnoses, uh, there's more and more debate that will come back into uh, how we go and attempt to defend cases, similarly uh, how we were going to defend cases uh, before the two-midnight rule, what the medical necessity and things are. So just looking out into the future, that's uh, not a bright spot. The other thing I briefly wanted to talk about is something that Dr. Ronald Hirsch uh, adeptly posted uh, in another location, and that had to do with the new NCD for AICDs that had an effective date of February 15, 2018. And like what Dr. Hirsch had pointed out, there is an extra requirement that was placed in regards to a formal shared decision-making encounter that must occur between clinical personnel 
and the patient utilizing a um, clinically evidence-based decision tool in regards to ICDs. And to me, this is a, an affront to physicians um, as far as how they go about obtaining informed consent, implying that they were not doing it, implying that they were not offering patients different opportunities and different uh, chances for uh, deciding either uh, for or against an ICD. To me, this is the first reach down into the examining room that I've seen by CMS. Additionally, why would anyone stop at this? They could proceed on to pacemakers or any other uh, elective type surgical procedure so that you would end up bogging down, again, clinical personnel um, trying to uh, get involved in the day-to-day physician-patient relationship. This is frightening for me, and I hope all of your listeners will be on the CMS open door call today as I will be trying to ask what in the what would you think about why would you do this why do you want to get down into the physician examining room that's all I have for you Chuck back to you thank you very much Dr. Field that was Dr. Larry Field Dr. Field is the treasurer of the American College of Physician Advisors it is Tuesday it's February the 27th and this is day 27 of Black History Month and you're listening to the 314th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday standby Talk 10 Tuesday is brought to you today by AHIMA. Now you can show them who's the boss of clinical documentation improvement. Bring your CDI skills to the forefront by earning AHIMA's Certified Documentation Improvement Practitioner Certification. Professionals who earn the CDIP credential distinguish themselves as knowledgeable and competent in patient health records. Join AHIMA on March 7th for the CDIP Advancing the Practice Exam Prep. This virtual session includes six self-paced on-demand webinars and one virtual interactive learning session. The webinars review the six domains covered in the exam. You'll also learn how to assess CDI workflow processes and how to develop effective physician queries. To learn more and to register, visit ahimastore.org and click on the Data Analytics Topic Area. Thank you, Clark Anthony. February is American Heart Month, and every Tuesday on this broadcast, we've been reporting on issues associated with cardiology. And this morning, we're reporting on a major coding story by a nationally recognized cardio coding consultant, Terry Fletcher. It's about assumptive coding for heart disease, and Terry Fletcher picks up the reporting from here. Good morning, Terry. Good morning, Chuck. Good morning, everyone. Happy to be back. Let's talk assumptive coding. As I opened up a Pandora's box this week in my ICD-10 Monitor article on hypertensive heart disease coding, To start, the first step in choosing the proper ICD-10 code is reading the medical record to identify the diagnosis the provider has documented and confirmed. If there is no confirmed diagnosis, we look for the sign or symptom that brought the patient in for the encounter, again in the absence of a definitive diagnosis. However, coding for hypertension and heart disease, along with kidney disease in the documentation, has many coders confused on code selection and the instructions on how to choose a correct code. The instructions for coding hypertensive heart disease in the ICD-10-CM official guidelines for reporting in 2018 state the following in Chapter 9, Diseases of the Circulatory System. Since hypertension, this classification presumes a causal relationship between hypertension and heart involvement and between hypertension and kidney involvement as the two conditions are linked by the term with in the alphabetical index. 
These conditions should be coded as related even in the absence of provider documentation explicitly linking them unless the documentation clearly states the conditions are unrelated. For hypertension conditions not specifically linked by the relational terms such as with or associated with or due to in the classification, provider documentation must link the conditions in order for them to be related. I've also found that many coders are ignoring the last sentence in the guidelines that state the term with must be immediately follow uh, the, uh, the uh, main term in the index. So let me explain how to work this through this confusion. In ICD-10, the word with should be interpreted to mean associated with or due to when it appears in the code title or the alphabetical index or an instructional note in the tabular list. This classification presumes a causal relationship between hypertension and heart involvement and between hypertension and kidney involvement as the two conditions are linked by the term with, again, in the alphabetical index, even if the physician does not explicitly link them. Hypertension with heart conditions classified to the I-50 or I-51.4 to I-51.9 are assigned a code from the category I-11, hypertensive heart disease. If the provider specifies a different cause, then they would be coded separately and not linked. This would be the same as if the physician gives another etiology for a chronic kidney disease. It's an assumed link when no other cause has been documented. So semantics are playing a big role here. Uh, to make this assumptive link, documentation is your key, which kind of now sounds like a misnomer and a conflict in terms. So let me give you a couple of examples. Patient is discharged with a final diagnosis of exacerbated CHF and secondary diagnosis of hypertension. For this patient, CHF and hypertension would be coded as I11.0, hypertensive heart disease with heart failure, since the causal relationship is assumed due to the word with following the main term in the alphabetical index under hypertension. Also, since the heart disease falls within the code range of I-50 or I-51.4 to 51.9, the link would be assumed, and you also need an additional code for the type of heart failure you would be assigned as a secondary diagnosis. That would be I-50.9. Now, another example is a patient is discharged with final diagnosis of atherosclerotic heart disease, or CAD, with unstable angina and hypertension. For this patient, a causal relationship would not be linked because the heart disease does not fall within the code range listed for the causal effect to be assumed. So CAD with angina falls within the code range of I-25. The code range for assumed link, again, is the I-50 area. So now in explaining this, trying to comply with this way of coding is not only causing some confusion, but may uh, make the effects of assumption coding reach far beyond the individual patient. The data derived from diagnosis codes are used, among other things, to gauge national healthcare trends and outcomes and to decide national and local coverage determinations for procedures and services. Standard claim forms now have up to nine diagnosis codes from, um, from four spaces in the past, and this change to me reflects the ongoing focus on diagnosis coding and the acknowledgement that multiple diagnoses may be necessary to tell the patient's complete clinical story. So, for example, the patient is here because of principal diagnosis one, and the risk is greater because of diagnosis two, which may affect healing or recovering of diagnosis three, and so on. So this isn't just about reimbursement anymore, although vital for claim success, but to give a complete picture of the patient's current clinical condition and to look beyond what it takes to get a claim paid and consider the importance of the di data diagnosis codes represent. Diagnosis codes tell the whole patient's story, allowed for accurate data collection and established medical necessity for services provided and ordered. And, based, um, and now value-based payment becomes the standard as it becomes a standard, I believe this ongoing discussion over assumptive coding without specific physician linking, only verbiage in the linking by default will play a role in the near future. That could affect your practice's bottom line. So we really want to keep a really good you know, uh, heartbeat on this, uh, making sure that you're understanding what's going on, and hopefully you'll join us next month for our webcast.
Dr. Raymer, back to you. Thank you, Terry. That was Terry Fletcher. Terry is a nationally recognized healthcare coding consultant, educator, and auditor. Chuck? Thank you, Dr. Reamer. And Terry, thanks very much. And by the way, you can read Terry's groundbreaking article on ICD-10 Monitor E-News. We're happy to have it there. Also, we wanted to remind you, you can register now to attend Terry's webcast on Assumptive Coding. It's coming Wednesday, March 28th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Hope you all have a chance to log on and participate in this very important webcast. You know, in the aftermath of Hurricanes Harvey and Irma in Texas and Florida last September and their impact on victims and survivors, emergency room nurse Diane Iverson reported on the need to document and code social determinants of health. She's long been an advocate of having those notes from social workers be considered as social determinants of health. Well, good news. Last week, the American Hospital Association, in its first quarter coding clinic, agreed with Diane's position. And with more on this developing story, please welcome Diane Iverson. Good morning, Diane. Welcome and good news. Thank you, Chuck. We received great news this week. Um, the coding clinic editorial advisory board approved the use of non-physician documentation to assign the social determinants of health ICD-10 codes Z55 to Z65. <clears throat> this is approved for publication, which was just released in the first quarter of the 2018 issue. The social determinants of health are the, quote, causes behind the causes of disease. It is likely that a bit of, to take a bit of time to educate the staff, update the EMR systems to prompt staff to include this information, but ultimately it will help refine the distribution of resources to maximize the health of our patients and communities. If we do not address the social determinants of health, we are just pouring water into a leaking bucket. The social determinants of health codes could also be called the stress codes. Stress in the form of relationships, the environment, the community, difficulty learning, difficulty at work, economic stress, or even caregiver burden, which is the code 63.6. Nurses, social workers, and others collect this information. The social determinants of health have application across the lifespan. For example, when children are experiencing adverse childhood experiences, also called the ACEs, they are more likely to experience mental and physical problems later in life. Most of the questions on the ACEs questionnaires have ICD-10 correlates with the social determinants of health. Policymakers many times don't have a good grasp on the magnitude of the impact of the social determinants of health on healthcare, in part because they rely heavily on big data to make decisions. As of now, the information is not in big data. We have the opportunity to change that. The data will help policymakers distribute resources in areas that best serve the patients and community. As word gets out on this new ruling, hopefully the EMR software will evolve to prompt staff to include more of the social determinants of health in assessments. Um, healthcare information leadership can help by advocating for the prioritization of the social determinants of health with both administration and staff. While these codes may not currently have a severity of illness, risk of mortality, or case mix attached, that would change over time as the statistical models update with more data. It may also be necessary for av to advocate for a little extra time per chart for the medical coders, but hopefully that would be minimal with advantages advances in the medical coding software. Back to you, Erica. Thanks, Diane. That was Diane Iverson. Diane is an emergency department case manager at a major university hospital in Baltimore. Previously, Diane was a clinical documentation integrity specialist at Johns Hopkins Hospital. Chuck? 
Thank you, Dr. Reamer, and thank you very much, Diane. Uh, by the way, you're going to be able to read Diane's story on this very important subject in next Tuesday's edition of ICD-10 Monitoring News. You know, in all our Talk 10 Tuesdays broadcast this past month, we have been recognizing that February is Black History Month. And so this morning we salute our nation's African-American health care professionals and recognize that their journey to where they are today and were and probably continue to be are struggles that many of us have never encountered. And sharing her journey is our special guest this morning, Dr. Crystal Watkins. We're going to hear her describe her ascension from an African-American student in the Baltimore City Public Schools to becoming a physician, a neuroscientist, earning a Ph.D., and becoming director of the Memory Clinic at Shepherd Pratt Health. So joining us now is Dr. Crystal Watkins. Welcome to Talk 10 Tuesday, Dr. Watkins. It's an honor to have you join us. Quite a journey it's been for you. Yes, good morning, Chuck, and thank you so much for allowing me to be a part of the panel. I'm just learning so much today about the different uh, coding information and make sure we apply it to our clinics. I'm just very happy. We always talk about um, some of the changes um, and challenges in Baltimore, but I'm just happy to be a product of uh, the Baltimore City Public Schools and be able to serve in the capacity where I can actually help patients here in Baltimore. So um, I believe as uh, my first teachers, my parents really nurtured the creativity that I think all students in math and science and future doctors need, and it's really just been the foundation of my career. But it was really the uh, Meyerhoff Scholarship Program at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, which is designed to encourage minority students to pursue doctoral degrees in the sciences that really nurtured my curiosity for science and research. And it was really at UMBC that I uh, had mentorship, Meyerhoff mentors, that inspired me to further explore my research interests and focus on long-term projects in biomedical engineering at Johns Hopkins. And that was really one of my first experiences uh, doing research at Hopkins in high school, um, where I worked in the nursing with nursing needs of AIDS patients uh, program. And then that really just launched my uh, ongoing interest in math and science. I had been interested in being a doctor since nine years old, but it was also something very different to have a concrete experience where you can actually be at a hospital, shadow physician, and really learn what medicine is about. And I think that the challenging, rewarding experiences that I had actually working in a laboratory as an undergraduate student really motivated me to, be, to pursue a combined MD-PhD degree uh, at Johns Hopkins. I thought that physicians cared for patients, but um, my grandmother, I remember when I was nine years old, had diabetes and had to have a double amputation in order to uh, save her life, and she also developed um, dementia and memory problems after that. And I found that it was nice to have exposure to those uh, Johns Hopkins physicians because I could actually look at working on new treatments and cures for patients. And another uh, critical mentor for me, in addition to Dr. Friedman Rabowski at UMBC, was Dr. Solomon Snyder. And he is really kind of considered the father of neuroscience and um, gave me the opportunity to work in his lab. My initial research was on uh, diabetic neuropathies. Uh, but it was really the influence from Dr. Solomon Snyder that made me think about psychiatry as a career. I think psychiatry has just been a wonderful and rewarding career because of the fact that you, uh, I realized my strengths as a physician were listening to my patients and really providing emotional and psychological support during the course of treatment. 
And I really gained personal satisfaction from taking care of patients that were really debilitated by psychiatric disorders who were then able to really reclaim their lives um, when given the appropriate treatment. And um, this experience made me decide that in a field where, uh, like dementia, where we have very few treatments, it's an illness that affects families as well as a patient, that having the opportunity to come to Shepherd Pratt and um, direct the clinical practice here where I'd be able to expand my interest in working with patients and families would really be something that I would be able to help other fellow citizens here in Baltimore. So I am just um, very honored. I've been here now at Shepherd Pratt for several ye- for about four years and um, really enjoy my work where I do a combination of clinical work where I study, uh, where I work with patients and families that have Alzheimer's dementia. And we also have a research arm here at Shepherd where we're looking at new treatments and cures. And I believe in passing the torch to the next generation of Baltimoreans and future physicians. So I also work uh, as an assistant professor at Johns Hopkins where we're training the new set of psychiatrists that are coming in the pipeline. So um, it's really been a rewarding uh, career and really based on mentorship, I think that's where I've been able to make my journey from Baltimore City Public School student to now the director of the memory clinic at um, Shepherd Pratt. Great. Thank you very much, Dr. Watkins. That was Dr. Crystal Watkins. Dr. Watkins, as you heard her say, is the director of the memory clinic at Shepherd Pratt Health Institute. And I want to thank Dr. H. Stephen Moffick for referring us to Dr. Watkins. And now, once again, it's time for the co-host of Talk to Tuesday, Dr. Erica Reamer, to talk about something that's on her mind. Dr. Reamer, what is on your mind today? Chuck, give me a minute to mount up on my soapbox. Okay, that's better. I have decided that I want my legacy to be ridding medical documentation of cloning. On my last consulting on-site visit, I realized that we all complain about copy and paste, but what we really, and by this I mean I really, abhor is cloning. CMS's definition of cloning is copy and pasting previously recorded information from a prior note into a new note. I witnessed this practice time and time again on rounds. Pre-populating today's note with yesterday's note may make for quicker rounds, but there are significant perils which I want to highlight. In my opinion, it is never acceptable to copy the interval history. You should be doing a face-to-face encounter, and the patient should be telling you, and you should be recording how they feel today. If the patient perpetually has, quote, no new complaints, close quote, you are documenting a lack of medical necessity, and the patient should be discharged. I think the S in SOAP or APSO note is for story. Why is the patient still here? What have you learned since yesterday? What did the consultant say? What did the tests and labs show? An example would be on day three for COPD exacerbation. Shortness of breath has improved, but still desaturating on minimal exertion. CTA was negative for PE. From these three sentences, you know why the patient was admitted, why she is still in the hospital, and what you learned from yesterday's studies. Last Thursday and Friday was my intensive medical documentation course through Case Western Reserve. The majority of the attendees are mandated because they have gotten in hot water with their medical boards. They come in disgruntled 
and leave grateful and incredulous that no one has ever taught them this before. One of the pain management docs asked a question how to distinguish three normal physical exams on three different patients. In the olden days, even if we wrote the exact same words, you could tell exams were done de novo on a different patient because the handwriting would render the note unique. But no two body habituses are alike. Do the patients have exactly the same range of motion? None of them have scoliosis or lordosis. There's no bony prominence. No one had difficulty turning on his side. Use your clinical acumen to examine your patients, and there must be some unique finding. No two patients are exactly alike. Physical, physical exams can also look cloned from using wholly templated text. Delete or edit anything that is not accurate. Try not to exclusively utilize macros or smart phrases. Put something unique in. Expand. Add an adjective that makes today accurate and different from yesterday. Declare in the general section, exam is completely unchanged from yesterday. In the olden days when I trained, doctors used to think they were smarter than their colleagues and peers. We would be skeptical of someone else's analysis. We wanted to draw our own conclusions from the data. We would never be complacent enough to just copy someone else's assessment and plan. This is the opportunity to pick up on a previous caregiver's cognitive errors. A good clinician is not playing sign and symptom whack-a-mole, but is synthesizing and diagnosing. Don't import entire radiology reports, including methodology. Don't embed the radiologic impression three days in a row. Don't bring in a blood pressure or culture result from two years ago. Clinical providers have got to go back to actively thinking and documenting their thought process rather than passively revising previous documentation. Would you read a newspaper where 80% of the articles were identical to yesterday's story? What if the only change was a single numerical digit? Be an author, not an editor. If reading my article and having your providers listen to this podcast on demand isn't enough, invite me to come tell them how to avoid risky documentation. It is imperative that healthcare providers put mentation back into documentation. Chuck? Wow. <laughs> Thanks very much, Dr. Reamer. That's outstanding. And by the way, you can read Dr. Reamer's very, very impactful article on this subject in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor E-News. And now's the time for our Talk 10 Tuesday Q&A session. Let's take a look at some of the questions that have been coming in. Dr. Reamer, Lori Johnson has a question. Dr. Watkins, is it true that antihistamines can trigger dementia? That's a very interesting question. So um, to date, there have been um, some studies that have suggested that people take, uh, taking antihistamines may be at risk. Um, but I think I don't think that that the um, that there's actually uh, true evidence out there that it actually there's a cause and effect relationship. So um, so I think there's more research and studies that have to be done. And I think you're better off taking the antihistamine um, than worrying about long-term effects of dementia. At least that's what the evidence says right now. Thank you very much. There was a question from Debbie, and I think that might be directed to uh, Dr. Field. Debbie wants to know, as a new criteria for this, has it been implemented or has a date been established for the implementation of ICDs? Uh, that was effective on 215 when written. That's what I thought. Okay. 
by the way, uh, you can download the uh, ICD-10 codes for social determinants of health. It's in our uh, handout tab there on the council. Uh, that's the one that was put together by our guest today, Diane Iverson. I look forward uh, to your being with us when we have our very, very interesting webcast coming up on Wednesday, March 28th. That's when uh, we're going to learn more about assumptive coding for heart disease, featuring Terry Fletcher, who was on today's broadcast. But that's going to be a wrap for this, our 314th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. And Dr. Reamer and I want to thank our guest today, Terry Fletcher, Dr. Larry Field, whom you just heard, Diane Iverson, and our special guest, Dr. Crystal Watkins. Dr. Watkins, thanks very much for being on our program. We hope to see you right back here for another edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Talk 10 Tuesday and ICD-10 Monitor. Thank you very much for joining us. Have a great week, everyone. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.